Good morning. It is a joy to be back with you after several weeks away. I know many of you have just recently come back from holiday as well. It's a joy to be back together as a church family. If you're new to us this summer, my name is Dave Furman. I serve as the senior pastor here at Redeemer Church of Dubai. I've missed you while we've uh, been away. We were in Europe on holiday, and I think the high temperatures each day were between 18 and 20 degrees Celsius. Just to give you a little little report, we uh, have, as you can imagine then, have encountered some severe culture shock upon our return. Our first time out of the airport uh, this last week, one of our daughters yelled as soon as we were out there, I'm melting! To which I thought to myself, yes, we are all melting away, dear. We are all melting away. Well, despite our melting issues, it's a joy to be back with you. We love this church. We love our church family here. We love Dubai and the UAE. We love what the Lord is doing here, and it is a joy to be back with you to be a part of that. So, well, real quick before we jump into God's Word, just I want to reiterate a couple announcements for those of you who came in uh, maybe late, maybe you're trying to find the place and this is your first time. Well, if, we, if, if you feel new to Redeemer, or maybe you just haven't been connected yet in community, we have a newcomer's lunch today in the back annex directly behind you right after the service. You don't have to, uh, there's no cost to attend. You'll get to meet some of the elders and staff, others that feel new to Redeemer, get to hear a little bit about the church. So join us for lunch today. And then next week we have our next membership class uh, in Limeridian uh, behind the hotel in Garhood from 2 to 9 p.m. You can register online, RedeemerDubai.com. Doesn't guarantee you'll join or commit you to join, uh, but again, you'll get to hear about the mission of our church Uh, about what we believe and who we are. Well, without further ado, let's jump into God's Word. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Genesis chapter 34. We're actually going to be looking at three chapters uh, today. Happy just read kind of the climax of the Jacob narrative from chapter 35, but we'll be looking at these three chapters that serve as a prelude to the Joseph narrative. It's kind of a hinge group of chapters. You could have kind of preached it back last year. You could preach it right now before the Joseph narrative. Things are going to swing, and things will begin to start focusing on one of Joseph's sons named Jacob starting next week. Over the last three years, we've been walking through this book. Little by little, in the autumn of 2013, we studied Genesis chapters 1 through 11. We saw there that there was one God who created all things, created everything, every person, Adam and Eve, the first two humans. He created them to be in fellowship with him. They were to live according to God's word. They were to enjoy God forever. They were to be in his presence. God was giving them everything that they needed for life, for godliness, and they were there in the garden with him. They were to multiply image bearers to the praise and glory of God. But as we saw Adam and Eve, they let a crafty serpent twist God's word and our first parents rejected God. They chose cosmic rebellion and independence from God. And their sin and the subsequent sin of each and every human after them means we are all separated from God. But then Genesis 3.15 gave us a glimmer of hope that there would be a way of escape. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There there was hope. God would bring a deliverer to defeat the serpent. And the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament actually points to this future deliverer. Meanwhile, though, wickedness spreads throughout the world. There are times when it looks like man is threatening the plans of God. Adam and Eve's 
son Cain murders his brother Abel. But Seth is born and through his lineage would come a deliverer. And then Seth's offspring multiplied over the earth. Sin also multiplied. Their hearts were so evil that God sent a flood to destroy everything. But God chose one family, the family of Noah, his sons. He saved them and God made a covenant with Noah so that any time he could look at a rainbow, he'd remember this covenant that God would commit never to destroy the world by flood again. But the flood could not wash clean the heart of man. Just soon after, there's more rebellion and God mercifully confused the language of all the humans on the earth at there at Babel and now to the ends of the earth, humans spread and spread their wickedness. Well, last year we started in the section called the Patriarchs. We started in Genesis chapter 12. And in that section, we saw included a covenant promise in Genesis 15. God asked Abraham to go get sacrificial animals, to sacrifice these animals and to make a path on the left and to make a path on the right. This was a typical covenant. And yet something remarkable happens. Normally the two parties would walk through the covenant, but something miraculous happens in verse 17 of chapter 15. Of the covenant, it is said that when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Normally, both parties would walk through the covenant making a signal that if they failed to keep the covenant up to par, they would be just like those animals, dead, cut up in pieces. But something stunning happens in this covenant in chapter 15. The stunning part is who passed through the pieces. See, normally when a king made a covenant, he wouldn't even dare go through the pieces. He didn't have to, just the servant would. He wouldn't, he wouldn't bother to. After all, the king holds all the power. But you know who never walks through the pieces in this covenant? Abraham. Now, what we saw back in Genesis 15 were the emblems of God's actual presence and his glory walking between the pieces. The lights with all their smoke and fire down the aisle of dead animal carcasses. God goes and God says, I will give you these people. I will give you this land. I will give you this blessing. I mean, Abraham would have been utterly shocked. Because there is only one thing that that covenant could mean. And this is, this is God saying to him, Abraham, do you want to be certain that I'll protect you? Abraham, do you want to be certain that I will uphold my promises? Well, here it is. If I don't keep my promises, may I suffer the same fate as these animals? May I be cut up, may I be cut off, and may I die. And God passes through the pieces on that day, and a covenant is made. God would promise land and seed and blessing to a moon-worshipping pagan and his elderly barren wife, Sarah. Amazing. But as we read Genesis, we're left wondering, how will this promise be fulfilled? I mean, God's people keep figuring out ways to make it almost impossible. Things don't look good. At times, Abraham fails to trust God. Remember, on two occasions, he lies about his wife, Sarah. He says, well, this woman, she's, she's, she's just my sister. And he puts his wife in his way to save his own skin. Now he and Sarah are almost 100 years old, and they can't have children. How is God going to keep his promise when there's no descendant? It will take God's miraculous intervention. And thankfully, he did intervene. When Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 years old, they had a baby. 
and you think you're too old to chase your kids around. 100 and 90, and God miraculously gives them a baby. I mean, no wonder Abraham's faith becomes more sturdy at this point. He even takes his beloved son, 100 years old, takes his son Isaac, he's over 100 now, to sacrifice on the altar because God commands him to. But then his son Isaac followed in his father's footsteps. He lied about his wife, said she was my sister to save his own skin like father, like son. Sin continues down the generations. Then Isaac's son Jacob, he's better. He steals his brother's birthright. He's a deceiver. He tricks his father for the blessing. But then Jacob wasn't able to have children either. And so finally he had 12 of them through two wives and two concubines. I mean, it's as drama as complicated as any modern-day television show. How is God going to keep his promise? And that's the question we're going to ask as we continue through the book of Genesis. And starting next week, we'll be looking at the Joseph narrative. But today, like I said, there's this transition chapters, 34 through 36. And these pages are not a feel-good story. It's not a feel-good story. It's not going to be the Walt Disney movie week. This text is dark. It describes horrific evil. There's rape, fatherly passivity, deception, degradation of God's covenant sign and a ploy to murder. There's idolatry, there's incest. There are episodes of evil everywhere. How is God going to keep his promise? That's the question. Well, we'll see three things in the chapter today, in these chapters. One, we'll see that evil is everywhere. Evil is everywhere. Second, we'll see that sin has consequences. Lest we think we live in isolation in our sin, sin has consequences. And number three, promise is kept. We'll see that God keeps his promises. Well, first, evil everywhere. Turn to chapter 34 if you haven't, starting in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. We see that Jacob's daughter Dinah heads out to be with the women of the land, the Canaanites. This is not a good thing. In that time, an unmarried woman wouldn't head out in town alone, much less a Canaanite town without some type of chaperone. While she's out, a man named Shechem saw her and raped her. Then afterwards, he proclaims his love for her and commands his father, get this for me. I want her. This, this is sheer evil. This young woman is violated. And then she's objectified even further by her perpetrator. Hey, dad. Hey, dad. I, I raped this girl, but I, I want to marry her. Will you go get her for me? No escape for Dinah, even after she's been humiliated and violated. I mean, the outrage you feel for the victim here as you read these verses is justified. I mean, this is outrageous. Well, word gets back to her dad, Jacob, regarding his daughter. Verse 5. See Jacob's reaction. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. 
but his son were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. I mean, Jacob's response is heartbreaking, isn't it? I mean, he keeps quiet. We know that Jacob doesn't normally keep quiet. This is quite an emotive man. This is a man who shows his emotions. He's a man who's a deceiver. He's a man who's proactive. He's a man who takes initiative. And here he just kind of keeps quiet. Apparently the situation wasn't urgent enough for him to go tell his sons. You know, the brothers, though, when they come in, they're furious with Shechem. Even with the brother's anger bearing down on him, Shechem has his father, Nahor, try to work out a deal. Try to work out some negotiation. In fact, dad is so away in the situation that looks like the brothers take over as chief negotiators. The brothers and Nahor talking about this potential wedding. And Nahor, he asks for a treaty with the Israelites and the Shechemites of Canaan, where the two groups would intermarry. Verse 12, Shechem offers any price. He says, hey, I know you guys are upset, but I'm, I'm really a good guy. Here's the offer. Give me this girl, and I'll write you a blank check. Come on, guys, no hard feelings. Let's just be one big, happy family. That's the offer on the table. There's no remorse. There's no apology. He's done an outrageous thing, and he's raped this girl. There's no repentance. And now he and his father are trying to buy, buy off the family. Later we read that during these negotiations, Shechem is actually holding Dinah hostage in his house. He's a wicked man. But the families agree. Which is a bit shocking at this point because it's quite confusing that his angry brothers would make a deal with his sister's rapist. But as we read, there's more going on behind the scenes. There was an unusual bride price the Shechemites had to pay. Verse 13. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by giving every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves. And we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Now, if you know your Bibles, without reading the rest of this chapter, it's unbelievable what's about to happen. Remember the overarching question I told you in the book of Genesis is how is God going to keep his promises? I mean, the people of God were not to intermarry with the Canaanites under any circumstance. We're holding our breath here. The entire covenant promise is in jeopardy in these verses. There may potentially be short-term gains economically for Israel, but the long-term effect would be the assimilation of pagan families with the family of Abraham. I mean, the covenant hangs in the balance. The people of God would be mixed, would be obliterated. I mean, it looks at this point like it's hanging by a thread. Well, the Shechemites agree to it. Now, this is not a foregone conclusion, is it? I mean, Hamor has to convince all the adult males to get circumcised. Now, I don't think the Shechemites would be giving each other high fives and congratulating each other over this proposal. This is not a ministry where you have to close registration early because you have too many volunteers. I mean, this would have some major convincing. And so Hamor does what he thinks he needs to do. He goes in verse 20 and he goes back to the people and says, hey, let's do this thing. 
let's, let's get circumcised because there will be great financial gain. It may hurt for a bit, but hey, there's gold at the end of the rainbow. We'll have access to livestock. We'll have access to property. Come on, guys, let's, let's do it. It'll be a tough few days, but treasure awaits. But see, that was, that was a lie, wasn't it? Economic benefit was never part of the deal for the Shechemites. And of course, Hamor clearly and cleverly never mentions the ulterior motive of wanting to get his son married. Never tells him the real reason behind this whole treaty and this whole deal. <clears throat> well, the men agree. Each man is circumcised. It's, it's happening. The distinct people of God will be wiped away. But then another shocking event happens. The story just keeps going down and down and down. There's an intervention of sorts. Verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. Killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, took Dinah out of Shechem's house, and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds and their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives. All that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Well, dad doesn't respond, but the brothers sure do. Simeon and Levi go on a massacre. They massacre the men while they're recovering from surgery. They rescue their sister, plunder the town, took everybody else, took all the things. Well, now, as you think about this, it's interesting because the brothers were right and wrong to do this. They did the right thing in the wrong way for the right reasons. The Israelites were supposed to destroy the Canaanites. They were supposed to conquer the land and remain whole apart from God. We see the conquest of Canaan going forward in the book of Joshua. They were supposed to do what they did. The destruction of the wicked Canaanites is not the real problem here. There, there were two main problems. One is that deceit was not acceptable in a peace treaty. But two, even worse, much worse... They offensively empty the Holy Covenant sign of its significance. Circumcision was the most cherished symbol of faith for Israel, and instead they use it for murder. The covenant sign was desecrated. It was used in deception and as a means of revenge. I mean, justice was correct, but the way they did it was evil. The brothers do the right thing in the wrong way for the right reasons. It's all so sad. I mean, the chapter ends similarly to how it began with the patriarch Jacob being passive and self-absorbed. Look at verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You've brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob doesn't confront Shechem on the rape. Jacob doesn't even confront his two sons on their unholy use of the covenant sign. But he confronts his two sons on the effect that it will have on him personally. He says, guys, why did you do this? Look at what's going to happen to me. People are going to gang up against me in the land of Canaan. I'm going to be taken out. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm just trying to save my own skin here. I mean, he's afraid that people will now attack him. He's concerned about his welfare, not about holiness and obedience. There's no moral indignation at the situation. No concern for Dinah. He just wants to save his own skin. 
I mean, the sons shout back at the end of the chapter, well, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And then there's silence. There's no response from Jacob. I mean, episodes of evil. There's rape. There's passivity. There's deception. There's desecration of God's holy covenant sign. There's murder. There's selfishness. And so much more. How will God keep his promises? On the one hand, we're glad they didn't intermarry. But I wouldn't go so far as saying that Simeon and Levi are heroes or that they saved the day. They may not have intermarried, but there's a problem. This family is sin sick. Are they ever going to get it together? Evil is everywhere. Well, that brings us to the second point in our text. Sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. As you study this passage in your community groups this past week, you may have asked, well, why are the people of God in Shechem in the first place? What is Shechem? Are Jacob and his family supposed to be there? Nope. But Jacob made a promise to God back in chapter 28 to go back to Bethel. Bethel means house of God, and God wanted him there. Jacob said he was going to go back. Jacob met, had met God. He had a conversion at some point, and now he's turning away from God. Why did he stop in Shechem? If you look at a map, it's only a few kilometers away from Bethel. It's not that far away. We don't know why he stopped. What we do know is that the valley of Shechem was beautiful. One visitor writes of the area and says, The valley was filled with gardens of vegetables and orchids of all kinds of fruits and watered by fountains which burst forth in various parts and flow westward in, in refreshing streams. It came upon us suddenly like a scene of fairy enchantment. We saw nothing to compare with it in all the country. And Shechem was this beautiful place, this valley between these two mountains. Bethel was not nearly as nice, not nearly as beautiful, not nearly as financially advantageous. Maybe Jacob thought, well, hey, there's business to be had in Shechem. Maybe like Lot years before saw this beautiful land and said, hey, I think I'm here. It's close enough just a ride's day away from Bethel. Maybe I could commute there when I need to. It was almost obedience. Jacob stays in Shechem for years. Years. Sin has its consequences, doesn't it? I mean, is it safe to compromise just, just a little? I mean, we're almost there. I, mean, I can see Bethel from the distance. Well, if Jacob had gone to Bethel in full obedience, none of this would have happened. The rape, the desecration, the genocide, the disgrace was traced back to his original disobedience. You know, small compromises reap huge consequences. Halfway obedience is complete disobedience. We read in chapter 35, verse 2, that their stay in Shechem led him to picking up sandals. Hey, we're here anyway. We've plundered everything. What's an idol or two? I mean, it's not really that big of a deal. Just an idol, just a statue, just a, just a gold thing, just another god. It can't hurt to have another god. Obedience matters and sin has its consequences. Now, they're supposed to be in Bethel worshiping God. Instead, they're in Shechem worshiping idols. Another consequence was Reuben's incest at the end of chapter 35. Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine, Bilhah, who was Rachel's maidservant. Rachel's passed away. 
This was more likely motivated by family politics than lust. Reuben would have known that Jacob didn't really love Leah. Rachel was the apple of his eye. Didn't really love Leah. And so by defiling Bilhah, she could not overtake Reuben's mother Leah as the chief wife. It's all just a mess. But Reuben knew that Jacob didn't love his mother much or treat her well. He sensed that Bilhah would be favorited. So he defiles her. He takes her out of the running. I mean, in this family, there's one compromise after another compromise after another compromise. I mean, just a downward spiral. This is how sin is, isn't it? I mean, none of us have graduated from the danger of sin. I mean, here is the patriarch, Jacob. It's the patriarch. You know, all of us are capable of falling. You know, I often remember the words of my youth pastor, Keith Chancey. He was, was and is a hero of mine. One day, we as the youth came over to his house for a Bible study. We separated men. We separated the, the women, the, 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 the teenage girls, teenage boys. And I'm there um, with Keith and the other boys. And he's talking about adultery and lust and pornography. And he, and he told us something so shocking. He told us that anytime he goes on a ministry trip, anytime he goes on business, that he is capable of falling in those areas. He was capable of falling into some disqualifying sin. I remember thinking, no, this, this can't be. You're my hero. I mean, you're a superhero to me. You wore an invisible cape all the time. You're like Superman to me. And here's Superman, Chansey, telling us, no, 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 I'm capable of falling. Now, to be clear, he wasn't confessing to us that this is something he was doing or had done or wanted to do. No, not at all. He was explaining to us something about our sin nature. That, it, that is this, that anyone can do anything. That any one of us are capable of doing anything. That none of us are immune to temptation or free from sin. We all face the temptation to sin all the time. Let me just mention four things about sin in light of this passage. So just, just four things about sin that we see here. Number one, sin is subtle. It's subtle. I mean, Jacob may have thought, well, Bethel... It's so close. I could commute. Wouldn't be so bad when I pledged to God to go to Bethel. I didn't really mean the city of Bethel. I meant kind of the metropolitan area of Bethel. Surely Shechem is is a suburb. Surely that will count. Surely that's close enough. And that's how sin is, right? We rationalize it. It's really not that bad. It's not as bad as that other person over there. It's not really breaking a Ten Commandment. There are worse things I could do. I haven't killed anyone. I'm not really hurting anyone. Now, one example of this is the subtlety of of the sin of adultery. I mean, no one starts an affair spontaneously. There are a million baby steps that someone walks towards in having an affair. I mean, it's not pursuing and loving your spouse anymore. It's what you think is a harmless daydreaming, but actually fuels your sinful heart. It's reading graphic romance novels. It's a lingering conversation with someone who's not your spouse. It's texting with someone of the opposite sex who makes you, makes you feel good and happy about yourself. It's a few minutes looking at pornography that kindles the flame of fantasy. It's sleeping in and stopping your routine of reading the Bible and prayer and eventually just kind of forgetting the importance of God altogether. I mean, you name it. I mean, it's a million compromises. You don't just wake up one day and look at your diary and see in your schedule there, oh, adultery is the first thing on my schedule today. Today is adultery day, I guess. No, it never happens. Sin is subtle. You don't plan for it. You don't put it in your diary for two months later. 
Sin is subtle. It's a slow heat. And before you know it, you're dead. I mean, you've probably heard about how frogs react to boiling water. Heard that illustration. If you boil a pot of water and you, you throw a frog in the pot of boiling water, the frog will just jump right out to save its life, right? But the way to kill a frog is you put the frog in a cold pot of water. You put the pot there on the stove and you slowly heat the pot up until it's boiling. And that way the frog won't know what hit him. The heat will come gradually. The frog will die and you'll have frog legs for dinner. That's what sin is. That's what sin does. It's a slow heat. You don't sign up for adultery. It's a slow heat. You not even understand the level of your disobedience. It's one baby step after one baby step after one baby step away from God. And before you know it, you're dead. Before you see it, it's too late. Now, sin is subtle. Number two, sin is enticing. It's enticing. We, we like it. It's nice. Jacob wanted to be in the beautiful and wonderful land of Shechem. And Jacob was willing to let sin reign in his family as long as he himself could have a peace, peaceful and happy life. I mean, maybe deep down, Jacob wanted what Esau had received for himself. I mean, it's interesting to see how wealthy and prominent Esau is by the lists in chapter 36. We're not going to w- read through all the lists in 36, but let me just give you the breakdown of what chapter 36 is all about. It's, it's basically a, a lineage of, of Esau's family. It's of his power and strength. You'll see there in verses 1 through 14 that there's a list of his sons and their sons, and he's got lots of them. He's got a huge family with powerful sons. You see in verses 15 through 19 that There's multiple chiefs in the community. Then back to Esau's descendants in 20 through 28. Chiefs again, 29 and 30. Followed by kings of the land in 31 through 39. There are kings that have been set up. And then a summary of the chiefs in 40 through 43. Esau was enormously successful. Lots of sons who were chiefs and kings. God had kept his promises to bless Esau with earthly prowess. Now God keeping his promises is certainly a theme in that chapter. Certainly a a purpose. But yet another main reason for that long list of names in the Bible is comparative. Look at chapter 36, verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Esau became so powerful, the writer makes a note there that he had kings before the Israelites did. I mean, Jacob was dwelling in the land of sojourners. No kings, no land, in contrast to the powerful Esau. Esau's sons are leaders. Jacob's sons are shepherds. I think one thing we realize again and again is that spiritual blessing takes patience. That the unrighteous prosper in worldly power and wealth, while the righteous seem at times to lag behind. This isn't always the case, but it is often the case. Esau is seeing greatness before Jacob does. But as one of my favorite seminary professors once said, the lost of the earth are seeing all the heaven they're ever going to see. But here's here's the good news for you, Christian, that you're seeing all the hell you're ever going to see. For Esau, his best life was truly in the present. Esau had no eyes for God or heaven. Pleasure was, was now for him. It was his guiding force. He wanted the hurt. He wanted the hunt. He wanted the hearty meal. He wanted the woman of his dreams. He wanted, he wanted the land, the power, the fame, the name. He despised his birthright. Oh, friends, sin is so enticing. 
It looks good, but enjoying sin is like cleaning the deck of the Titanic. It's a lost cause. It's all going to pass away. One man has said, I was working so hard to climb the ladder of success only to realize that it was leaning on the wrong building. Oh, friend, look to the eternal. Second Corinthians 4.18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Well, sin is enticing. Well, number three, sin is deceptive. It's deceptive. I hear this often, that someone thinks that their sin will only affect them, that it's a private matter. But friend, your sin affects everyone around you. It's part of sin's deceit to think that your sinful choices don't have an impact on others. But your sin has an impact beyond what you've ever ever imagine. You see right here from Jacobson on down. Now, the main point of this passage isn't be a good dad, but fathers, how can you miss the challenge and the warning here? Amen. How can you read this and not feel the indictment of being passive towards the young people you're called to raise up? You know, I was reading this and the pages were just screaming out to me this week, love your children and train them up in all righteousness. I mean, did you see how Jacob's sin affected them? I mean, fathers at Redeemer, how are you raising your children? Are you, are you convicted reading these words? I mean, perhaps Jacob hadn't taught Dinah about her interactions with the Canaanites. There was an inappropriate friendliness between them that Jacob doesn't seem to have ever addressed. He doesn't confront Shechem for the rape of his daughter, nor his sons for their massacre. He should have been at Shechem's door demanding the release of Dinah. He should have been demanding justice for her. Should have been leading his sons in a better game plan so they wouldn't have concocted and executed a terrible plan. Should have been crying out to God in prayer. I mean, in chapter 34, where's God? I mean, he's not there. I mean, he is there, but not to them. Seems like all Jacob cares about is whether he's going to be okay. I mean, this is convicting, isn't it? Man, I, I was floored by this and convicted by this. I'll confess that at times, that's what I want. I want myself to be okay. I want my needs and my wants and my desires to be met. And if my kids mess that up, or if my wife messes that up, or if anything messes that up, if my world is messed up by anyone else, you know, dads, a good question to ask is, what what do you worry about? What brings you to prayer? Is it your business or bank account, your visa status or hobbies, your career or your image? Or does the well-being and spiritual life of your children bring you to your knees? I was convicted about how little I pray for my children. I mean, do do we invest time in teaching our kids the Bible? As the father and the head of the household, are we taking the initiative to teach our children the truths of God's word? Are we reading to them? Are we praying for them? Are we praying with them? I mean, do you have a plan for that? Are you leading your wife and kids? Do you apologize to your children and ask them for, for forgiveness when you sin against them or their mother? Do you discipline your children when needed? Or do you watch as a bystander as they live out their lives? 
Oh, fathers and all of us, mothers and singles and grandmothers and grandparents and youth and children, all of us, I want you to know that our sin is not private. That it affects all those around us. Your sin affects your children, your spouse, your work, your church, your friends, your witness, all of us. Your sin affects all of us. Even if you think it's in the privacy of your own home, apart from anyone else, I'll promise you, your sin affects all of us and our corporate witness. Well, finally, fourthly, the worst thing about our sin is that it is ultimately lethal. Number four, sin is lethal. I mean, Jacob made a decision to follow his own desires instead of God. He was an idolater. I've been talking a lot about idols with, with our children. We've been reading through Exodus in our morning Bible times, and we spent a little extra time on the Ten Commandments. And in those commandments, we've been talking about the first two, about idolatry. And I'll ask them, Kids, what is an idol? And they'll respond back, well, it's something that you like more than God. It's something that's not God that you make God. It's great. That's a great definition. It's right. It's when we pursue things outside of what God has given us and we make those things more important than God. We replace God with any number of things. What we do when we do that is we're telling God that he's not enough for us. That what he's provided is not enough. It's complete and utter rebellion against God. No, sin is dangerous because when you do that, you're placing yourself in opposition to God. And God opposes the proud. You've decided and said you know better than what God knows. And it is a dangerous thing to put yourself in opposition to the one true living God. Sin is so dangerous that it will kill you. And I read an old news story. Gloria sent me an email this week with a news story about a man who caught a mouse in his home. I don't know about you, but I don't especially like mice. I wouldn't want to cohabitate with one. I wouldn't want one in my home. I would want to get it out. So this man did what any of us would do. He tried to get the mouse out of his home. Right before he caught the mouse, he had actually set up a fire outside burning some leaves and trees. So he got the mouse out of the house and he thought, oh, hey, this isn't a bad idea. I'm just going to throw the mouse into the fire pit and just kind of burn it to death. Well, he walks out, he throws the mouse in the fire pit, but then something crazy happens. The mouse on fire runs back into the house. (laughs) Runs right back into the house, sets the whole house on fire, and the whole thing burns down. Everything, every last artifact just done, destroyed by fire mouse. Now the fire chief said in his report, I've seen numerous house fires, but nothing as unique as this one. Yeah, I would think so, chief. Now, this is just like sin. You let a little sin into your heart, just a little bit of sin into your heart, and it will destroy you. It doesn't take much. In fact, the Bible says in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. It does kill you. Actually, it already has. Apart from God, all of us are dead. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're no better than Jacob. We've all chosen the Shechem of our hearts and turned away from Bethel. We've all been enticed by the things of the world. Just like Adam and Eve, we've all rebelled against the holy God of the universe, and we deserve death and judgment. We need to turn to God. That's exactly what happens in our passage. We see a ray of light come through the tunnel, and there's obedience. Look at chapter 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. 
So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Now God comes again to Jacob. This is just the grace of God to come again to him and to tell him to go on a religious pilgrimage, to finally get to Bethel. Jacob, go. This time Jacob goes quickly. He gets there and drives a stake in the ground of Canaanite worship and builds an altar there to worship God. Jacob's big worry earlier, oh, that everybody's going to hurt me. Everybody's going to attack me. No harm happens. God puts a terror on the land. They pass through to Bethel unscathed. It was quick and true repentance. God takes care of him. Jacob steps up. He tells his family to repent. He says, hey guys, let's get rid of all the idols. Let's, let's, actually, let's leave them here right at Shechem, right outside Shechem. Let's bury them and let's leave them behind. Let's go ahead in obedience to God. Now that's repentance. That's change. That's leaving sin behind you. That's marching towards God. And they do. He leads his family. This, was a, this is what a dad does. This is what a, a leader does. He leads people away from sin and to God. He tells them, we're going to worship the true God and anything else that keeps us from God, we're going to bury in the ground. We're going to leave it behind. At last, the people of God are in the place of God, worshiping the one true God. Things seem to be going much, much better. And finally, we will see that again and again, God keeps his promises. That's the third point today. And it should leave us on an encouraging note. Third promise is kept. Look at verses 9 through 15. Beautiful verses. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your, your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is beautiful verses. God renews the covenant he made to Abraham here with Jacob. You'll notice in both accounts, You'll see similar things. There's the same opening phrase, God appeared. The same divine title, God Almighty. There's a name change in both accounts, Abram to Abraham, and here Jacob to Israel. There's a promise that kings will come from them. There's a reference to being fruitful and that a multitude of nations will come from them. I mean, here in chapter 35, the climax, the centerpiece of the Jacob narrative, Jacob hears the strongest promises from God that he's ever heard. And Jacob, in the role of the father of God's people, just like Abraham and Isaac was, he sees that a company of nations would come from him, that through Jacob, the whole world would be blessed, Jews and Gentiles. Though the promise remains intact, there is hope. That's what the whole book of Genesis points to. I mean, Esau may have had beautiful land, but Jacob's family would have the promised land. Esau may have had earthly riches faster, but through Jacob, heavenly riches would await 
Esau may have had the greater earthly name, but through Jacob, his believing descendants would have their names written in the Lamb's book of life for all eternity. No, not by earthly leaders, but by the creator himself. Esau may have had kings faster than Jacob, but through Jacob would come the king of kings. You know, ultimately, God's promises find their fulfillment in the greater Jacob. You know, I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon that God in his covenant with Abraham would be torn to pieces if he didn't keep the covenant. When in reality, God would keep the covenant, but would still be torn to pieces. And this is really incredible. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had no idea the cost of this covenant. It was so great, so dreadful, that in the middle of that day, the sun was covered and Jesus there, God who became flesh there, laying, standing, hanging from the cross, yelled out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, what happened to Jesus? Well, Isaiah 53 says he was cut off from the land of the living. It was covenant language. He's saying that I'm alone. I am cut off from God the Father. No, Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed so that he could give forgiveness to us. Our sin against the holy God of the universe must be punished by death and judgment. We're hopeless and helpless to live the life that we should, but thankfully there is one who did. There's one who lived perfectly, and that was Jesus himself. Oh, friend, if you're here, maybe you're, you're new. We have a full house today. I see so many new faces. We're so glad that you're here. If you've come today, maybe you've been invited by a friend. Maybe you're just interested in hearing about what this Christianity is all about. Friend, I urge you to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus. That every single one of us who walks on the face of the earth is dead apart from God. And I urge you to not stand up against the sovereign king of the universe, but to join him, to turn to him, to place your faith in him. There's no better time to do that. There has been a way of reconciliation made for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mark 1 gives us instruction and tells us how to be saved. Jesus tells us that we must repent of our sin. We must turn, just like Jacob and his family did. We must turn away from it and trust Jesus to save us. I encourage you to do it today. Friends, I encourage all of us to follow this God. He's a God who keeps his promises. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, as we read this text, we confess that sin is enticing to us. As Mac prayed earlier, sometimes we sin because we fear man. We fear what others think about us. We, we fear what others will think about us. And so we decide that looking a certain way or being accepted in a certain way is more important to us than being accepted by you. Father, would we as a community resist sinful desires? Would we retreat to hope in the promises of God? You've made promises and you've kept them thus far. Oh, when we read scripture texts like this, it fuels our heart for the whole week that you are a God who keeps his promises. The promises kept are from promises that you've made long ago that you have indeed kept them now and forevermore. Promises made are promises kept. Oh, Father, thank you for the death of Jesus. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. And as we now await for his glorious return, we pray that Jesus would come for us soon. Oh, Lord, oh Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.